Hello and welcome to another episode of Who Knew in the Moment, the podcast. I'm your host, Phil Friedrich, and today I'm honored to have Stephen Howard with me. Stephen Howard is a retired NBA basketball player. He played for the Utah Jazz in the epic finals against the Chicago Bulls in the late 90s. And today I'm super excited to highlight his path from growing up in Texas to playing basketball at DePaul to making it to the NBA and now doing commentating, coaching, and speaking. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hello and welcome to another episode of Who Knew in the Moment, the podcast. Today, I'm honored to have Stephen Howard with me. Stephen is a retired NBA and professional basketball player, a current college basketball analyst, and also um, something that stood out to me and we're going to talk about today is how he's parlayed his sports career into teaching others about leadership and uh, how important that is to him. So Stephen, thanks so much for being here today. Hey, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So I wanted to ask this growing up, having a, a mom that's a principal and a dad that's a school counselor, how does that impact a, a younger Stephen and growing up that way? Well, what it meant was I didn't have your normal holidays. I didn't have your school breaks. I didn't have your summer break. It was filled with a lot of teachable moments. Um, so uh, and, and it was beneficial also because a lot of kids during the summers, they have a lot of um, unsupervised time, which I didn't have. And so uh, not as much time to get into trouble as kids are, are apt to do. Um, and a lot of those teachable, well, really most of those teachable moments that I went through, I wasn't very enthusiastic about it as a child. <laughs> but, you know, after growing up and going through the rigors of adversity and um, young adulthood and adulthood, I'm very appreciative of all of those teachable moments. Yeah, that's good. So talk about, you know, some of your first memories of getting a basketball in your hands and getting to play that sport. Man, I mean, I'm very fortunate that uh, my parents always had me in sports, you know, so I, you know, the first sport I, I, I think I played was um, soccer and then baseball and then basketball. And then obviously when I started to get taller than others, you know, that was kind of a, a, a sport that I gravitated more towards. Um, and, you know, it wasn't something that I just immediately just had this um, amazing fascination with or just amazing skill set with. Um, I had to work at it, uh, but I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed the competition and, you know, I enjoyed getting better and, and seeing how far I could push it. Yeah. Now, growing up in Texas, I'm sure there's a lot of competition uh, in the athletic scene. And once again, getting recruited is a pretty uh, special and unique thing. So talk about, you know, starting to progress with your skills in high school and then realizing, all right, this game can take me to, uh, you know, the next level and get the opportunity to play collegiately. Well, I was fortunate that I went to a private school in Texas. And in Texas, we have a lot of strange rules athletically. Um, strange rules in other areas as well. Um, <laughs> but because I went to a private school, I was able to go to camps outside of the state. And so I was the first person from Texas to really get a lot of national exposure from those camps. Like I was the first one to go to the Nike ABCD camp, which, you know, they invite the top 100 uh, yeah. players in the country. And so that really kind of pushed my exposure um, on a national scale. And after that, I was getting, you know, recruited by um, schools from coast to coast. 
uh, and, you know, DePaul came knocking at my door and, you know, they had been number one the previous year. Uh, Joey Meyer had been, I think, you know, CBS coach of the year. And they were always on TV, WGN. And this was before um, sports were on TV 24-7. Yeah. And when I went to DePaul from 88 to 92, we were, and it's not even a, a, an argument, the most widely watched um, school in the country because our games were on WGN. And then our other games against like Notre Dame or North Carolina would be on CBS or ABC. Yeah. So we were on every, every game was on TV. <laughs> which most schools had maybe four or five games on TV, but WGN, which was from coast to coast, you know, was, you know, our partner. Yeah. So that was really beneficial. And that was really probably the biggest selling point for me going to Chicago and, and DePaul. What was the TV exposure? What's that? The, the selling point was the TV exposure and being, yeah, having absolutely. Games. yeah. Yeah, just the fact that my, my parents could watch every game and, yeah. and wouldn't have to, you know, go to games, which they ended up going to a lot of my games as well. <laughs> but yeah, the TV exposure was, was a huge selling point. Absolutely. Now, with your time at DePaul, um, like you said, you, you guys had good players on your team, but you start emerging as one of the best players on the team and one of the best players in school history. Um, you know, talk about that learning curve from high school to college. I mean, even when you're one of the top players, there still is just a little bit of a difference between being 18 years old and playing against, you know, 22 and 23 year old guys. So talk about, you know, that freshman year and the learning curve and getting uh, getting going there. Yeah, when, whenever you make a jump from, you know, peewee to <laughs> middle school, you know, high school and the college, you have to jump up your skill set. And uh, I was fortunate that I just had an inner drive that I just wanted to be the best that I could be. And so I came into the Paul as a freshman. And honestly, I was probably recruited as just a, a, a good role player. Yeah. Um, I, I wasn't someone that they thought was going to come in freshman year and, you know, start the first game. Um, but I just had that inner, you know, push to want to be the best. And I just came in and, and made a name for myself and continued that all four years. And, and you know, that's where you see the great players all have that inner push. And obviously some have it more than others, like your Jordans and your Kobe's and your Tom Brady's. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was fortunate that I, I had a lot of inner drive and that inner competitiveness that, you know, regardless of what I was doing, I wanted to be the best at, at, at whatever it was. Yeah. Now, in that season of life, you know, being at DePaul, were there any role models for you that were kind of setting the standard of, you know, hey, Steven, I want to take you under my wing and, you know, help you get acclimated to the college setting? Or was it truly mostly, hey, I had to kind of figure this out on my own. I had to navigate it uh, by myself. No, there really wasn't a, um, any mentors or, or, I mean, there was people that I, I tried to model my game after, like yeah. Sam Brundy, he was a senior when I was a freshman, just amazing athletic ability. And, and um, he really taught me how to run the floor and to tire out um, the other bigs and to add that part of your game. Um, but, you know, you got to remember when you get to college, um, guys on the team, like you're taking their spot. Yeah, that's right. You take their minutes. Yeah. Um, and then on the academic side, uh, you know, there had never been an academic All-American at DePaul, so there was really no one that could, um, you know, push me or, or, or tell me the, the roadblocks or adversity that I was going to encounter 
in that way. And so, yeah, I mean, you're, the coaches are just looking for the best players for the game and they're trying to get you better. But as far as role models or people that are going to take you under their wing, yeah, that, that didn't happen at DePaul. Yeah. So you hit on it right there. Uh, not only were you excelling on the basketball court, but you also excelled in the classroom. And yeah, to your point, you were the first ever um, academic All-American. So talk a little bit about what that mean, what that meant to you then, but what it means to you now, because once again, that's a really, uh, a really great honor. Yeah, it was something that when I came in as a, as a freshman and I, I, I just put that as one of my goals. And, yeah. you know, I've, I've been fortunate that, I don't know, maybe it's my stubbornness. You know, when I set a goal, I achieve it. And, you know, it, it really kind of set me apart um, scholastically and um, athletically uh, because no one had done it before and no one has done it since. And so, you know, I, I tell people all the time that, you know, when you're trying to create your niche, you know, try to set yourself apart from others. Mm. And I was able to do that. And, you know, as far as what it meant to me in the future, when I retired from playing uh, professional basketball, it was, it was being that academic All-American that set me apart, that really got me the attention of ESPN and gave me that first two-game tryout that I got uh, when I retired in, in 07. Yes. So on senior night, one of the accolades or two of the things they list off for, for Steven is top five in rebounding and top five in points scored in a career, which is uh, quite an accomplishment. I mean, it doesn't matter where you're at to finish top five in the history of, of a school uh, is always great. So, you know, for you, you obviously had success and that probably led you to start thinking, all right, well, maybe a uh, a chance at a professional career, NBA or internationally, is an option. So talk about, you know, the, I guess, the progression from being really good in college to then starting to explore what opportunities would be uh, be after school. Yeah, I think it was around my junior year that I started to think, like, hey, I, I might be able to make a career out of this um, because, you know, our team was ranked nationally every year and I got a fair amount of exposure yeah. um but when draft night came um with the NBA there were 30 NBA teams that did not agree with my assessment of being an <laughs> NBA player and so I didn't get drafted and you know like I've always done if there's something that I want and there's something that I believe that I can do um I just said okay I gotta I gotta change the minds of these teams and I got invited to one rookie camp and I was with the Utah Jazz and I ended up taking it and ended up making the team and you know the rest is history uh, but it, it, it was never an easy road and, and I, I tell people all the time I take the, the hard route you know not intentionally but yeah. you know I'm just I, I'm not averse to hard work and yeah. so I believe that I was an NBA player and so I just had to again just like I did in college I had to you know, up my workouts, I had to add to my skill set, I had to get bigger, faster, stronger, uh, but more importantly, I had to get smarter in all those areas. Um, and I did that. And at the end of my career, I had a 15 year career, you know, playing four in the NBA and 11 internationally, got to see the world, got to play in the NBA finals. And so, yeah, it, it was a, it was a good run. Yeah. So I, I want to go back to the draft process though. So, I mean, 
maybe walk me through a little bit of the emotional ups and downs of that, right? So you're coming off of a great, you know, college career, heading into draft night, thinking, hey, it's possible that I could get drafted. And then there's probably a bit of disappointment, you know, that comes with not hearing your name called, but then getting the opportunity to attend that one draft camp and being like, all right, I got to make a name for myself. So talk through just the emotions of that and what kept propelling you forward to say, I'm going to get there. Um, yeah, well, it just, I mean, the draft night came and I, I thought there was an opportunity that you know, I could get drafted by a couple teams and it just, it just didn't happen. And I remember after, after I didn't get drafted, I'm I'm driving on Lake Michigan and my dad called and and he knew I, he could tell I was upset and, um, you know, he kind of talked me through it and I I looked at some options. I, you know, I could have gone overseas and, and, and pursued things internationally. I could have, you know, gone to Oxford University and, and, you know, gone the academic route. Yeah. Um, but he was like, you know, what is it that you want to do? And, and, you know, you've accomplished everything you've set out to thus far. Why should this be any exception? And so I really took to that. And, you know, when you talk about disappointment, yeah, I was, I mean, that was one of the lowest of the lows that I had ever experienced. Yeah. Um, but I, I think most successful people learn how to use those lows for fuel um, and I was able to do that. And I remember um, I didn't have like guys now have all these trainers um, that work them out. I, I just had me. Yeah. And I remember getting, getting on the on the beach at, at Lake Michigan and I would use my basketball shoes, a pair of old basketball shoes. And I would run on the beach in the sand to get stronger. And I just worked myself out. And Michael Jordan's trainer, Henry Thomas, was um, he would work out Jordan at I think it was called the Chicago Athletic Club. Yeah. And I would see him over there and I would ask him and he would give me some little workouts on the side. And so I, I did those. But, you know, it has to be a lot of personal mo- motivation, you know, to achieve the things that you want to. And, and again, I tapped into that and was able to be successful with it. Yes, absolutely. So like you mentioned, you, you start off being with the jazz. And so talk about just that first experience getting into the NBA, being on the roster and uh, what, you know, what that felt like. And also similar to what we talked about, the high school, the college jump, then now college to pro jump that, uh, that you had to assimilate to. Well, when I, when I made the jazz, uh, when you're not drafted, they put you on something called a make good contract. And that meant that up until the day that you're guaranteed, which was somewhere in January, they could just cut you and they just owed for whatever amount that you played for. And so the time that I knew that I was on a team that make good day, we were actually in Dallas and we're playing the Mavericks and we're staying at the Hyatt Regency, which is the hotel that I worked in when I was in college. You know, DePaul had gotten me a job there. Yeah. That was kind of special. And I remember it was after the game and I come down to go to the bus and I'm looking around because I'm nervous because you don't want a coach to come up and be like, hey, Steven, <laughs> come here. I need to talk to you. Because yeah. that's normally when they're like, hey, you know, we need your gear and here's your ticket home. Um, and, you know, everybody was kind of uh, uh, aloof and staying away from me like I was some pariah. And then the coach came up and he was like, congratulations, you know, you made the team. And that was a really special moment because my parents were in the, you know, the audience that night. And it was, you know, it was just a surreal moment. But 
like you said, before that, I had to, you know, change my game. You know, in, in college, I wanted to be light on my feet and quick. But then you get into the NBA with like real grown men. <laughs> I had to change and, and put on some weight, learn how to use my body more. Um, but more than that, just learn how to um, withstand the rigors of travel and the accelerated pace of the game, uh, more game. Uh, and you really have to, again, tap into that personal motivation and the personal discipline um, yeah. in order to, you know, be that type of player that you want. Because as you know, in, in your profession and, and in any profession, it's the people that are able to be disciplined and to have that sustained consist consistency that are able to have that elevated success. And, and I was fortunate, you know, to be able to do that. Yeah, that's so good. You're, you're exactly right. You know, consistency, dedication to the process, and you, you can get to where you want to go. So I'd love to say, and you'd love to say that after that first year, it's just to the moon from there, right? I mean, next year is NBA All-Stars and things like that. Right. <laughs> but after that first year with the Jazz, we end up having two years of overseas play, right? Yeah. So talk about that emotional part, right? Like, hey, I made it to the NBA for this year, and then all of a sudden I'm now off to international basketball. Uh, talk about being able to emotionally kind of handle that and then what comes after those two years internationally. Yeah, so that next year, you know, I, I wanted obviously to stay in the NBA. I went through the whole process again and the rookie camp and the vet camp and didn't make the team. And I got an offer to go overseas to play for more money than I made in the NBA. Um, so I, I, I took that opportunity. Yeah. But it was funny. It was in the second division in Italy. And the team ended up having money problems. And then they cut me. And then I ended up going back to the state, you know, kind of with my tail, you know, between my legs. Yeah. And the, the Jazz ended up bringing me back to finish the season with them. And so then at the end of the season, I went through the same process again in the summer, trying to make the team didn't happen. So then I went overseas again, back to Italy in the first division and played an entire season. And it was kind of a lot of situations like that where I would go overseas and, and I, I made a name for myself overseas. Yeah. And, and it came to a point where I was like, I, I wasn't happy when I was overseas because I felt like I was an NBA player. Yeah. And it, it came to a point in my life where I was like, okay, I'm miserable. I'm making everyone around me miserable. I'm probably making my teammates in Europe miserable. Wow. I need to do what I need to do. And at that point, they really didn't have the, the G League or the developmental league right. in the NBA. They just had the CBA. And the CBA, like you would make maybe 30,000, you know, yeah. for the season. And so it's like, okay, you got 250,000, 30,000. <laughs> like, what are you going to take? And I just made the determination that, like, look, I'm an NBA player. I'm going to get back to the NBA. And if I don't make a roster, I'm not going to go overseas. I'm going to go the CBA route. And I did that. Mm -hmm. And I ended up being the first player um, called up from the CBA uh, to the Spurs. Um, and, you know, that was a team that was before the, the year before they got Tim Duncan. Yeah. So I feel like I have a part in, you know, building their dynasty. And then I went back with the Jazz. Um, after I ended up getting released by the Spurs and you know that's the year that we went to the NBA finals and you know arguably the greatest Utah Jazz team ever to play and you know the rest is history and, and I just kept going after that and then I played with Seattle the, the next year and then finished out my career 
overseas in Europe. Yeah. So I want to highlight, you know, um, that opportunity that you had to play. I mean, with, I mean, a phenomenal jazz team, right? I mean, you got Carl Malone, Ostertag, Stockton, Hornacek, right? I mean, a lot of the greats. So talk about being a part of a team like that and, you know, what it took for you guys to have the success that you did. Well, I think the thing about the, the, the jazz is we were always knocking on the door. Yeah. And I think the team as a whole made a concerted effort because in the playoffs every year we would get farther and farther. And then it just got to the point where like, okay, we're not going to accept anything less than, you know, the Western conference finals and going to the NBA championship. Yeah. And, you know, it really takes a team effort. And if you look at that, that Utah jazz team, we didn't have the best athletes. I mean, we had Hornacek that was basically playing on one leg, you know, (laughs) But we had the best team as yeah. far as execution is considered. And so there would be nights when your offense or your defense is going to falter. But if you can execute, you're going to get, you know, 20 points off of that. And even though everybody knew the plays that we were going to run, they couldn't stop us just because we executed uh, pretty much flawlessly. Um, yeah. And that taught me a lot about the preparation because it's not like we just got into the game and executed. We executed because in in practice it was a stickler to detail and it was like oh you didn't do that run it again yeah run it again and you got to tuck your tuck your jersey in and when you go into into the game your jersey has to be tucked in where the you know we're we're in a game and it's a one-point game and the coach calls you over and he's like hey your your jersey's out (laughs) yeah like we got 10 seconds left to go in the game like why are you worried about this but again it was attention to detail and that's that execution and you look at the great franchises the great corporations mcdonald's isn't number one because they make the best hamburgers they're number one because you get that same hamburger whether you're in dallas whether you're in paris whether you're in russia and that taught me a lot about that next level of you know top one percent performers and looking back you know that's why i was able to be in the top one percent in high school top one percent in college mba and then taking that same discipline and consistency into the ESPN and able to do that for, you know, now, I don't know, 13, 13, yeah. 14 years. And, and it, again, it's those lessons that you learn and the successful people learn and they pay attention and they listen and then they assimilate that to part of their DNA and they use that in the future. And, and you know, fortunately because of that upbringing, going back to my parents and yeah. all those teachable moments, I've, I've been receptive to teachable moments and, you know, a lot of people aren't receptive to that. And, and I'm, I'm glad for all of those uncomfortable, teachable moments growing up. Yes. No, that's so good. And I, I love that you highlighted the small things matter. You know, uh, a bunch of small things added up, end up being a big thing. And so that's the difference between wins and losses. It's the difference between promotions, non-promotions, right? It's not just a sports thing. Yeah, Absolutely. I love it. So I got to ask, I'm putting you on the spot here, but is there a singular moment or game that just stands out as one of those like hang your hat moments of being in the NBA that when you look back at your time uh, as a professional athlete, you say, man, that was one of those moments that just etched in my mind for forever, a highlight moment. Man, I had so many highlight moments. Um, unfortunately, I don't have like uh, the shot moment like yeah. Jordan did, or I mean, he's got so many moments. I, 
I think it was just getting the respect of my teammates and the respect of my coach. And I was a guy that, again, was not drafted. Um, but, you know, Jerry Sloan just really respected me and my work ethic. Yeah. And he would always put me in to change the game. And it was funny because whenever he would put me in, he would immediately run a place with me. And I'm like, bro, I'm cold <laughs> out here. Can I go, go up and down the court a couple of times? Um, that and the fact that it was the, the year that the Jazz went to the NBA Finals when I was cut by the, the Spurs, the, the team and the, and, the, and the teammates, the main players of the team, Stockton and Carl, asked them, like, they asked them about bringing me back and they okayed it. And so the fact that the Jazz actually cut a player and ate some money, which the Jazz were not one of those teams no. that were, you know, eating up money. Very frugal right. team. And the fact that the team wanted me to bring me back really made me feel good and gave me a, a sort of confidence that I was able to, you know, carry on forward uh, with, with me. Absolutely. Now I got to ask, I'm going to put you on the spot. Was it a push? Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that was definitely a push. But, you know, that's not part enough of to call an offensive foul. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, you're not going to call that. And, and, you know, B. Russ flipped a little bit as well in his motion. Yeah. He was, you know, probably going for the steal and, and not playing that fundamental defense. Uh, but yeah, it, it was definitely a push and, and Jordan knows it was a push, but that's part of basketball. I mean, <laughs> yes, if, it is. if you're, if, if you're in basketball, you're going to get pushed, you're going to get hold held, you're going to get hit, you're going to yep. get stomped on. And you know, if it doesn't get called, you got to keep going. That's right. That's right. So as you're ending the professional career, uh, internationally, you mentioned earlier, you kind of, uh, highlight it. You come back and you get this opportunity, a two-game opportunity with uh, ESPN to do some uh, announcing and being an analyst. So talk about how that opportunity came to be. Well, my career, you know, was kind of, you know, getting towards the end and you could yeah. see the, you know, the, the swan song being, being sung. And I, I felt like I wanted to, you know, give my shot at, at doing some TV. Yeah. And I was able to go to a school, um, a high school game, and kind of do a, a half halftime analysis, and they yeah. recorded it, and I sent that off to ESPN. And I remember I was playing in Saudi Arabia, of all places. Yeah. And this was back in the day where we didn't have cell phones. And I called home to check my messages, and there was a message from ESPN, and they said that they were going to give me two games. And I could have continued to play basketball longer, but I knew I wasn't like your Charles Barkley that, you know, that TV gig was just going to be waiting there for you. Yeah. And so in my mind, I retired on the spot. And then at the end of the season, I just didn't try to play again. And I got those two games. And I was initially, like that first game, I was horrible. Because ESPN does not train you. They just <laughs> get people, they put you on the top of a building, they push you off. If you fly, you fly. <laughs> if you don't, there's somebody right behind you that's going to, they're going to give an opportunity yeah. to. And fortunately, the play-by-play -play guy I worked with was really good, and he coached me after that first game, which was abysmal. And here I am, you know, 14 years later. Yeah, absolutely. So what's the most fun part for you getting to now, you know, be an analyst in basketball, a sport that, you know, you've put so much, you know, blood, sweat, and tears into and now getting to be an analyst for it? 
it's really just being a, a part of a game that yeah. I, I grew up with and just getting to, you know, see kids play and to be able to give my perspective and my expertise and knowledge about the game and share that with the audience. And, you know, when you have a good game and when you have a conversation with your play-by-play -play and it's fun and, you know, you, you, you're able to get some good points out there, it's not work. It's, yeah. you know, it's just like playing basketball. You're just out there having fun. I love it. Now, in 2009, uh, a university that you had done so much for decides to recognize you and put you into the Hall of Fame. Uh, talk about that moment and getting that phone call letting you know, hey, you're going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, that was a really special moment. Um, it was special because my family was able to be there. Yeah. When I was inducted, my daughter was there. Um, I got inducted with uh, my teammate, David Booth, that uh, you know, I played four years with. Um, but it's always special just to be recognized for um, excellence in any situation and to be put into the Hall of Fame of your school um, was just, uh, you know, a moment that it, it just it just meant everything. And so, yeah, I, I've been fortunate to, you know, be associated with DePaul and to be, you know, one of the people that they like to, you know, use an example as like, this is who we want our student athletes to um, look after and and try to you know model their career after. Yes. Now you've done some leadership speaking and uh, have the leadership syndicate that you've been uh, doing. So talk a little bit about what the message you're hoping to share and really get across to people is in, in what you're speaking about there. Well, yeah. Well, during the um, pandemic, I, I finished up my master's in leadership. Yeah. And I've been speaking for a while, but I kind of shifted the message to, to leadership. And really, it's just, you know, I, I just talk about, like in any business, there are three things that, you know, someone could point to as to this is what you need to do to be successful. And leadership is the same thing. And I just talk about the three things that you needed to be to be a successful leader. And, you know, just kind of give you steps and, and stories from my life yeah. to, you know, show examples of, of how that's possible and why it's so important. Because I think particularly now when um, the U.S., the country, the world is just so divided, it's that leadership and, you know, it's the emotional intelligence. It's, it's, it's being able to relate to people that you, you have a dissimilar background to that you might not understand. And I think in large part, people in some cases just don't want to understand, mm. but it's in yeah. that understanding and it's in that listening and it's in that opening up or just, you know, trying to become a part of that other person's experience that I think we grow um, and we learn. And for me, I'm all about evolving and learning and each day trying to become a better version of myself. And I just feel that if everybody does that, then, you know, the world could be a, a much better place to living. Stephen Howard for president 2024. Let's, <laughs> let's start that up. Let's start oh. that. Up. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> not a job I would want. Not at all. No. Well, Stephen, I appreciate you sharing your story today and just all the pivotal moments that have led you to where you're at. Uh, you know, I mean, I like how in the beginning you said, Hey, I learned a lot of lessons from my parents. And then, you know, that helped me be coachable throughout my career. And even, you know, 
uh, having coach Sloan say, Hey, the small things matter. You're like, yeah, I know that I've been taught that my whole life. So I appreciate you just kind of sharing how you uh, have gotten to where you're at. And I want to say, I can't wait for us to follow up in another, you know, three to five years as you continue to progress in your career and uh, continue to do great things with the, uh, with ESPN and uh, see where you're at next time. Hey, thank you for having me. And, you know, if, if, if you're, road for me is true and I'm the president in four years, you know, three to five years. I don't know if I'm gonna be able to take this call, but you know, just just let them know that we we know each other from the past and, and you'll eventually get through. So I'll have my people reach out to your people. Yeah. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I love it. Well thanks again, Steven. All right. Thanks, Phil. I love Steven's story. Uh, you know, he had so much success in high school and then in college and then did not get drafted to go to the NBA. He had to work his way into multiple contracts with multiple teams playing internationally, but the resilience factor. And so although he talked about it from a basketball context, we can focus on what's that resilience piece in our life. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Who Knew in the Moment.